everybody. Welcome to the Lex G podcast. Been a while just checking in with sort of a now in theaters, uh, you know, recent reviews, hot takes kind of thing. It's going to be a little bit all over the place. I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on any one movie, although I would, there's one I would like to talk about, but I'll save it for later in the podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, just talking about things I've seen recently, thoughts have been going through my head. We're in that end of the year period where every movie, you know, there's a lot of things out now that are oh so very serious and I'm so far behind on them. So I still haven't seen Tar, which I guess is kind of everybody's, it's kind of the, the water cooler movie of any of the Oscar bait that's out or that's come out in the last few weeks. Maybe especially if you're in a bigger city, um, there was Triangle of Sadness and there was a uh, decision to leave and, um, uh, James uh, James Gray's Armageddon Time is out, which I want to go see. James Gray has had the weird arc for me that I call the link later, where I, I sort of undersold him for such a long time. Like Linklater, Richard Linklater is great, but there was an era where I was like, "Oh, Days and Confused, that's just you know a hangout movie," and I didn't I didn't see Suburbia or the Newton Boys. So he was like one of the big Gen X auteurs of my era that for some reason he didn't seem because he didn't have. This is such a juvenile way of looking at movies, but when I was in my early 20s and he was really, even the Before Sunset, Before Sunrise movies, which were fantastic, it was like, well, he's no Tarantino because Tarantino had guns and crime shit. And I always sort of gravitated to stuff like that, like Danny Boyle, like David Fincher, like Brian Singer, like whoever was making sort of the twisty crime movies. And you're in your early 20s. You don't have some of the stuff that Richard Linklater was doing was very soulful and it was very, it was, you know, a little more tranquil than a lot of the guys around him. So I was like, he was expendable to me. It was almost like a badge of, I mean, I was in movies, into movies from when I was really, really young, but there was definitely an embarrassing era. Um, especially, I think it was at the height of that, like early nineties, maybe mid nineties when the epitome of cool to me was like Oliver Stone, David Lynch, Spike Lee, Quentin Tarantino, all these sort of voluble, aggressive movies or, or you know, intense movies that were kind of dark and, you know, a little raunchy, but definitely super violent. And you sort of, t I took it on like, you know, that that was like, I'd have to watch uh, Taxi Driver and sit there and, you know, pound Mountain Dew and stare at the screen intent, you know, intensely like, oh, I'm just like Travis Bickle. Like, yeah, that no wonder you weren't getting laid, dude. Maybe, maybe take a night off from Taxi Driver and clean up your act or something. Uh, Natural Born Killers was out in that era, which was a big favorite of mine. Killing Zoe. So you get what I'm saying. So like Cameron Crowe or Richard Linklater, who are more of these like humanist directors with smaller stories and you know nice nicer cast of characters i guess while i like the movies because i always liked all kinds of movies but i just you know maybe not maybe not anime i'm not so good with animated movies as i found in that box office game where i get a nice flat zero every time there's some tune i'm like nobody knows that shit and it's like finding nemo or whatever that made like two billion dollars but by and large um Link Letter was a, a director. I it took me until I think I aged into it. It was around the time of the movie Bernie with uh, Jack Black, uh, the third before, whichever before midnight. I want to say the third one with Delpy and and uh, Hawk, where their marriage is sort of crumbling, where they're older. Uh, definitely Boyhood, which really the stuff in Boyhood that got to me was the stuff with. Uh, you know, Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette aging into these cool middle-aged parents. And you get to see that so much of the hype around that movie was about, you know, how they filmed it and about the kid. And I thought the really interesting stuff was watching the two actors who were my age age into that and giving them grace notes and doing a story about like kind of suburban parents that 
maybe they're not the hippest, but the movie had no judgment about that, about aging, about selling out. Like there's little little touches like Ethan Hawke getting his minivan or he marry, remarries and the, the wife is sort of like a uh i she's a little more spiritual or she's sort of a uh, maybe a conservative christian type of some sort and the movie isn't particularly judgmental about that it just shows these things as like a matter of fact thing and i think if you're like 23 and watch that movie you're not really getting the what's really great about it is the stuff that hits you as you get old and you see these little small ways that you used to think you were the cool rocker dude or the guy with the cool muscle car and you've just become this just going along to get along just doing the right thing by your family or by your kid and the overwhelming, you know, that that movie to me was just sort of crushing, but in a way that I would never want to watch it again. Um, How did I get off on Richard Linklater? This is a bonus riff. I'm just doing a bonus riff for you here because I had nothing to say about that. Um, And then the one after that, Everybody Wants Some, which is a movie that I feel I got guilted out of liking so much because I felt like there was like 10 minutes where that movie was like, oh, it's the spiritual sequel to Days and Confused. And it had good reviews and good buzz. And the critics who saw it first were like, this is so fun. This is classic Richard Linklater. And it really takes us back to a time and place. And when I saw it, even though it's about guys maybe eight, 10 years older than me, it had that early. 80s that you know the sports guy the bros and the partying and stuff and um very sort of like wide-eyed innocence about that era and then someone i want to say it was amy nicholson but i don't want to it was it was just a general thing that it was kind of that air that was that year of Trump and it was kind of the year that things were starting to get a little more contentious things that have been classically you know dude bro kind of stuff was sort of becoming bad because it reminded everybody of other things that were going on in the culture and someone just ripped this movie about being all from the male point of view the girls don't really have their agency they're there to you know be at the parties and drink beer and look pretty whereas the guys get all these great character details whether it was the Wyatt Russell character and uh, uh, Glenn Powell's in that, and the main dude is what's Taylor Hawkland or t- whatever that guy's name is, who was in the Joe Weider story. <laughs> Joe Weider's in it. Um, and it seemed like very quickly, and the fact that the movie just bombed, it bombed. The bottom fell out of that movie. And then Last Flag Flying was the next, which was the spiritual sequel to Last Detail, which is one of my favorite movies. But instead of Jack Nicholson, you get Cranston at the height of his overacting. And I liked the movie, but it was a movie that nobody, nobody wanted to see that movie. Cicely Tyson at the end is a very moving moment. I I thought it was pretty good. Fishburne's in it. And um, God, I can't even remember who the third wheel is now playing the other character. But Steve Carell, right? Um, I liked it, but it just did nothing. And then Linklater has had that effect where, like, since then, he's made a couple movies that I don't know what happened. I've gone back to where I was before. Like, he's become a skippable auteur, and I don't want it to be that way, but he's gone back to making a couple things since that I feel like he he had that great run there in the mid two, the early to mid-2010s, and now I'm back to where I started, I guess, of, like, sitting some out. And a long way of saying James Gray has this movie out called Armageddon Time, and I I guess it's semi-autobiographical, I assume, about a kid confronting prejudice in what looks to be the late 70s, early 80s, starring the eminently Jewish Anthony Hopkins as the patriarch of the family, and Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway, in her, you know, sort of making herself have gray hair and eight. Well, I love when they do that. Like when Jessica Chastain played old or played Tammy Faye or when the Charlize monster, I guess would be the classic example. You got to hit the, the cart red carpet hard after that to remind everyone you're still super hot and young. Like I noticed Anne Hathaway's doing like a bunch of magazine spreads where she's like, she's romping and frolicking and flipping a hat around and we and throwing her arms up and got the, you know, cute little outfits. It's like, you can't have anybody thinking you look like Audrey Hepburn and always or something. 
something. You know, no, no, I'm still young and hot. Um, but it, Armageddon time, the point of this five minutes out of my way to say like, that's what, that's what poses as one of the serious movies of this year. And you can tell it's been out for a weekend. It didn't seem to gain much traction. Oh, and the James Gray um, has become, like I was saying about Linkletter, uh, he's had a little run there where I thought he was the king. Like, I just, I don't know. When he, when he started out, there was that movie Little Odessa, which was a crime movie with Tim Roth. And then when he became the Yards and the We Own the Night, I had this image of him as like this, like, I don't know, Eastern European stevedore <laughs> off the coast of Brooklyn where he's scraping barnacles on a ship and then making these movies at night about these hard scrabble East Coast, you know, uh, ethnic types. And the, I don't know, the serious, I pictured him having like a, maybe look like Mandy Patinkin if he were a professor and he had come from like the Ukraine or something I don't know I had all these I didn't know I don't know he was sort of like I took him for granted I think I like those movies fine there was one that seems to be everyone's favorite in hindsight was two lovers with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Gwyneth Paltrow that sort of started the James Gray fascination I think of younger Twitter for me the one that I was like blown away by which is another one that I wouldn't say I was guilted out of liking it as much I just don't think the, the rest of the world was with me on this one was I just loved Lost City of Z something about it the quest to it I'm a big Charlie Hunnam fan i think he's awesome because i was a big sons of anarchy guy and something about the how tenacious he was about this quest going back into the jungle and the movie is just sort of i don't know it it reminded me in some ways of like um like of Werner Herzog or especially of Apocalypse Now, it's not as colorful and crazy as those movies are cuz it still has that James Gray um this sort of i don't know kind of professor like removed to it i don't know something about it it just had this effect that when it got to the end and uh, having put all this energy into this thing it was just a uh, it just was pummeling to me i just really loved that movie i like the immigrant a lot too i think those were the two that i was like i was totally on board with james gray they kind of had a similar arc of this you know this very driven person or this you know this I don't know, the, and the way he set the time and place and everything. And then there was Ad Astra, and there's a subway in outer space. Like, they're going, there's a, a, a product placement for Subway Restaurant in this futuristic sci-fi serious movie that I was that took me out of it, and these, these rovers that are jumping around and stuff. And I, I didn't like that one as much. I know my esteemed uh, hero, Awards Ace, is a big fan of Ad Astra. Uh, Awards Ace always only goes back to, like, five years. Like, when he does his riffs, it's always like, Martin McDonough, the most overrated writer-director. You know, he, he gave you three billboards. The three billboards. And he just talks about three billboards. Like, the dude made him Bruges. He made, he's like a famous playwright. He did Seven Psychopaths. But he only goes back, like, he was talking about, he's like, uh, Black Adam. It's from the director of Jungle Cruise. The director. And, like, that guy's, that Jomi Seurat. I can never pronounce that guy's name. Whatever it is. It's the guy who directs all the Liam Neeson movies. He did The Shallows with Blake Lively. That, that guy, whatever else you want to say about him, he's kind of more than just the director of Jungle Cruise. If anything, Jungle Cruise is when he started to really become a paycheck kind of hack. But that guy had a pretty decent body of work there with all those, you know, nonstop and unknown. And I know I'm talking about pot boilers, but if he was maybe the Rennie Harlan of House of Wax, which I like a lot. I don't know. I'm just the ace goes back to Ad Astra as like the James Gray high point. I don't think anyone else thinks of that. For me, Ad Astra was when I started to kind of, I was like, oh, maybe this guy, 
isn't as great as I thought he was. And now he's got Armageddon time and he's become someone I'm kind of taken for granted because I'm in no particular hurry. I don't know where I was going with that, except those are some of the Oscar movies that are out. And we have coming up a slew of Oscar medicine for you, like the Fablemans, the, you know, if I can just riff about some upcoming trailers, that Fablemans trailer. I mean, if we're not Spielberg, I don't know. I don't think I like movies about, people becoming a filmmaker movies about filmmaking. I think we've seen so much of that. And I guess the idea is, yeah, we'll want it. We'll be enraptured here. Spielberg tell us about how he became Spielberg. And there's this part in the trailer where they, they he's bequeathed the eight millimeter camera with these hushed intonations. And it's like, Oh, it reminds me of, I did this. I already did this riff on Twitter, but I had this bad idea. One time there should be a movie called Mayflower. It'd be Ridley Scott's Mayflower. And it would be in the mode of like 1492 and uh, Robin Hood and kingdom of heaven. You know, that certain super brown, Ridley Scott movie that's like the period there's always a guy in like a flowing trench coat with long hair and Michael Wincott would be in it and there'd be a lot of scenes in bazaars with people pouring tea into a steaming bowl and shit like that with like you know the, the Ridley Scott haze of like brown versus blue purple and there'd be like a Hans Zimmer score or something and we'd see the, the Mayflower arriving on you know the ship arriving off the coast of Massachusetts or whatever. And then in the trailer with like this propulsive, you know, that Hans Zimmer, and it's like Mayflower and it's super pompous. Russell Crowe would be in it or something. And the, the, uh, the people from England fleeing, they'd come off the ship and they'd bring out a big ass roasted turkey, like a big, nicely Boston Carver rotisserie turkey. And everyone in the audience would go, oh, it's the Mayflower. It would be like so on the nose, so cheesy seeing the turkey. And the idea of like little Stevie getting his 8-millimeter camera just, it annoys me in the same way. And you got, you're got you going to have Judd Hirsch doing overacting. You got Michelle Williams playing a bowl of soup as always. And I'm sure it's really good. You know, it's Spielberg. I just feel like I, I don't know. You can he's obviously sacrosanct. You know it's not going to be it'll it, there's certainly is always going to be cinematic value in it. He's a master. There's no doubting that. It's just it's kind of weird like I feel like in the late 80s early 90s maybe it had to do with the Spielberg was making always and hook and stuff like that. There was sort of like when I was going to school for film, it was a little bit like Spielberg was Scorsese was the cool guy. And Spielberg was the generic guy. Like if you were generic, you like Spielberg. And now it's become like some of the, like most the mean film Twitter you know, aesthetic types who like super serious movie Kaye du cinema types just revere Spielberg. And I always thought he was like the dude that like Godard made fun of and that he was uncool to like, but now it's become like uncool to say anything bad about Spielberg, which who would, he's like the Suge Knight of movie making. You're never going to cross him or say anything bad about his movies, but the idea, it just is pure. I'm sorry. It's like, it looks like treacle to me. And um, if I never see another movie where they have the, you know, the kids sitting in the, the front row with the, his eyes all alight as the, the projector glow is behind him as he's transported by the magic of cinema and images familiar from us to us from like, you know, it's, it's cinema paradiso. And we've seen so many variations of that. The little, the special little guy, we had it last year with Belfast and you know, the kid and he's sitting there all wide eyed with wonder. And he, that's what I'm going to do. Hey kid, I had that moment too, watching Re Revenge of the Pink Panther when I was five and look where it got me doing this 
podcast in my underwear. We don't all get to be Spielberg, you know. But the idea that he's going to be the biggest filmmaker of all time cheapens it. Isn't the, isn't the story like you become Ed Wood or you become the guy from American Movie where you're kind of a delusional? Like, it would be, I would be so much more excited about it if I knew the guy was going to be a total hack. You know, if it was, maybe Spielberg could still direct it, but it should be about, like, Tim's story or somebody. Like, it could be about, and that's how I, there was a movie it's a terrible movie, and it was with Renee Zellweger, and she has two boys, and she takes them to Hollywood, and she's a hard-working single mom. I want to say she's a waitress or something. She has two kids and two young boys, and they have various travails, and it's all about what a special mom uh, Renee Zellweger. Did I say Reese Witherspoon? I meant Renee Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. Got two kids. She's, you know, kids have little adventures, little slice of life set in maybe the 40s or 50s, and... It gets to the end, and it's narrated by one of the boys. Oh, mom did this. That's mom. That's how our mom was. But anyway, it gets to the kid tells the whole story. It's all these winsome tales of his mom. And then he gets to the last 10 seconds, maybe, of the movie before fade out of the narration. And it ends with him going, and all that is how I became George Hamilton. You're like, wait, what? Did I just watch like a backdoor George Hamilton biopic? And that that's never been disp- at all in the movie. That point was never made in any way that this kid was going to become the actor George Hamilton from so I guess we've just seen we I like man if I knew this was going to be the story behind the guy from Zorro the gay blade and love at first bite I would have been taking notes but you've just like it could have been any movie about any kid and at the end it's like oh I'm George Hamilton I want the Fablemans to just be <laughs> like like we could assume it's Spielberg the whole time oh it's going to be Spielberg it's going to be Spielberg it gets to the end and he's like that is how I became Brett Ratner. I think it would be instantly better. I would just I would be so much happier instead of having to hear about Spielberg kind of blowing himself there. But I'm sure it's great. I also get that trailer every time I go to the movies for She Said, which is uh, not based on the Brie Larson song, but uh, it's about Harvey Weinstein and the women who take him down. It's one of these very serious journalism movies. Those movies set in a newsroom where you always got like some slattery looking guy in a blue shirt and the tan dockers and everyone's like doing their journalism. And in these movies, <laughs> like Spotlight and Movie critics love these movies because movie critics all think of themselves as journalists, especially the older ones. They might have come up working as like the daily critic in these in the newsroom as like a print critic in the newspaper days. And so they love this stuff. They love the smell of journalism. They love those shots of the newspapers reeling off on the on the, the conveyor belt. That stuff is like catnip to a certain breed of like boomer movie critic. And to me, it's just, it's so embarrassing. And it's kind of embarrassing because I know movie critics will like it. And like some dude, it's like some guy who was like a bad Rona Barrett doing a junket with like uh, you know, Simon McCorkendale in 1984, thinks he's Carl Bernstein. So they light up they're like, oh, it's just like how it is for us. Like, dude, you're reviewing Keys to Tulsa in the movie, in the local paper. is not, not akin to this hard-hitting investigative journalism, but they love that shit. But in these movies, they always have like a main character who's conveniently just so naive about the world and in this trailer like Zoe Kazan comes out and I guess she's a cub investigative reporter and she's all wide-eyed she's like I hear the wrongdoing out in Hollywood is incredible like who doesn't know that shit I knew that when I was like eight this you've, you've made it to the New York Times and you didn't know there were sleazy uh, vultures in Hollywood she's gonna do an expose and the way the trailer like Carrie Mulligan's doing her 
flat dead voice wearing those bad adidas three stripe uh slippers that girls were wearing five years ago and she's like i'm gonna go on record she's like doing some weird vocal fry that's totally annoying and then they save it up like andre brower's running the newsroom he's running the scoops like sort of like uh uh like like ben bradley i guess or whatever the equivalent and then uh and so the, you see them like doing various reports, and then finally they they wait like a minute of the trailer to drop the name. They're like they go to someone's door and like, would you like to go on record about Harvey Weinstein? And it goes to black. Like we're all out, all us rubes out there in the audience at the Burbank 16 waiting to see Black Adam. We're gonna be on like, ooh, ooh, this is gonna be on Harvey Weinstein. And then they have some guy doing like a bad imitation on the speakerphone. He's like, who the hell went public with this? They have like a guy doing the 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 voice of the guy, no orange soda with no ice from Beavis and Butthead. Just doing, I, I, it's such bullshit to just hide the fact that it's Weinstein. It should just be called Harvey with an exclamation point and like what. White background, red font, like it's a Meet Dave or Dr. Doolittle 2 era Eddie Murphy movie. I mean, just go all out. Have a dude doing like a hack Weinstein and just make it absurd. Obviously, the reason they would never do that, of course, is they don't want to give him the airtime. And, you know, this isn't his story. This is the story of the brave women who exposed this and the people who've suffered. And that's 100%. I would never make fun of that. But just as a movie, it's just such Oscar bait medicine. It's so there's also a certain smugness to it. Like, there's a little bit of presumption that this is just like the most thrilling uh, the biggest story in the world to people who live regular lives out in the middle of nowhere. And it's, I don't know, there's a certain smugness to it. I don't care. I mean, it's like they're releasing this at Thanksgiving, like load up cousin Louie and let's go to the showcase North and watch Harvey Weinstein. It's, I don't know. It's arrogant. It's pompous. I hate these Oscar medicine movies, but this stuff comes out and I'm like, just get me to the January movies. You know, speaking of bad trailers, trailers, I just cannot wait till we get to the crappy January pot boilers and slasher movies and, whatever scream seven or liam neeson taking on you know a cartel whatever bullshit is coming out in like january february those movies to me are so much easier to watch than the fablemans and she said and uh triangle of sadness and then there's this trailer that i god i can't wait till this movie just comes and goes and it's weird to say it's babylon it's weird to say this because i Really liked all three of Damien Chazelle's movies, La La Land in particular. For me, having been someone who at one point had artistic aspirations, it's a movie that meant a lot, and it's not a cool or hip movie to like anymore. It famously, very publicly, lost the Oscar on sight to Moonlight when they did that reveal with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, and it's become sort of a punching bag. It's earnest, it's sappy. People go on and on about how they don't remember the It's not a great musical like the great... I remember the songs from Greatest Showman, but like, who cares? I remember it just meant a lot to me because I had wanted to be famous. It was like a big thing. I have to be famous. And there's a last act of that move. So a lot of the material in it, you know, I found it very moving and relatable. And then at the end, they have that sort of fantastical flight of fancy that was just crushing to me. It's sort of the 25th hour ending, if you know 25th hour especially I think for guys of a certain age, that ending is very haunting because you're always thinking of that. It's a wonderful life family man question of like with the slightest deviation, how your life could have ended up. And La La Land does sort of a like tamer version of that, but it's very romantic and swoony and, um, it's kind of sad. It's melancholy, you know, about how Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling part their ways and what could have been in an alternate universe. Uh, it was just something that meant a lot to me. It was very moving. And I would never talk that movie up. I'm not telling you to go watch La La Land because it's become sort of an embarrassing movie to, to stump for. 
But I, I was quite fond of it. I like Whiplash a lot. I think a lot of that is the J.K. Simmons performance, but it's, you know, quite a movie. It's quite a ride. And I love First Man. There are parts in First Man that are great. Uh, it's a little colder than his first two movies, but... Uh, Man, there's that part with the launch at daybreak, like in the first thing in the morning when it's still dark, um, and the sh- and the rocket's going to take off, and they're suited up, and the way that music is blaring, it's even though you know how the story is going to go, it's it's really captivating filmmaking, especially once they're out in space. There's a part where Gosling and um, what's his name, uh, Lucas Haas, are kind of past the point of no return, and they're making their approach to Mars, and the music that they crank up, and the approach to it, and that rickety ship is kind of one of the great moments I think of the last five years it was something I was just spellbound by I went to see that movie twice just to see that part a second time um, which I very rarely do but um so I like Damien Chazelle but this Babylon trailer is again to use the word insufferable it's Hollywood bullshit it's backstage drama and about period you know classic Hollywood which filmmakers are always enraptured by and think that everyone in the world cares about. That's why we get countless versions of this. There's the Ryan Murphy Hollywood. There was last year the Being the Ricardos. There's Hail Caesar by the Coen Brothers. I mean, you can go... We just had Blonde, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. Directors think that we, especially, you know, the common man is enraptured by this Hollywood glitz and glamour, and especially in the old age and movie stars and flash bulbs. And I think nobody cares about this. It's insufferable. They always play that. You know, it's one of those when like, it's like, ooh, the backstage, you know, the execs and the studio chief with the stogie. And they're always like talking real fast, doing kind of the Sorkin dialogue going, they're always taking corners and going around like the props and stuff. Like there's always like the extras, the cigarette girls in the back while they have this like rat-a-tat dialogue about the studio heads and chiefs and the release dates. And we're supposed to be spellbound by this bullshit. And they always, they always, I know I said this on my podcast about the Oscar movies last year about the Ricardos movie. They always have that same bad jazz music that did, 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 did. so you know it's like that little bit of drum kick when they go around the corners like did, 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 did. so you know you're getting the inside dirt. It's oh, it's so terrible. And this Babylon trailer, first of all, it's supposed to be about the 1920s Hollywood, and as the silent movie stars are partying and living a life of debauchery, and this is right before the rug is going to get pulled out from them, and the talkies are going to come along and you know put the the silent movie stars and filmmakers out of business that is very much boogie nights i mean it's the porno industry of the 70s where they were trying to make the real movies and when video came along the you know the industry changed it's kind of the same thing and i can say that with some confidence not even though i've not seen the movie because the trailer is very much and the shots the way the movie looks is very much a complete thievery of Paul Thomas Anderson. I felt here to now that Chazelle kind of had it. Chazelle, Chazelle kind of had his own thing going, but this, the exteriors, these big Panavision shots, they're in the same look as the master or there will be blood. The way the sun looks in frame, the costumes, the, the perspective, it's totally those. And then the partying aspect of it is completely boogie nights. It starts out, you know, that trailer it shows the Paramount logo and it's white. And then you hear the snorting of cocaine and it evaporates. It's like, dude, they did that in Jekyll and Hyde together again 40 years ago. Tone it down there, Scorsese, okay? And then we have Margot Robbie in that trailer. She's all jittery and her hair's all crazy. And she's doing that, that Edith Bunker accent. Now, I love... Margot Robbie. I'm a huge fan. I think she's the most beautiful movie star going now. I'm, I find her captivating. I couldn't wait to see Amsterdam just to see her, which I'm going to talk about in this if I ever get to the actual movies. 
Um, but somehow when she's playing Americans, she seems to think she has to do this, you know, basically the Harley Quinn voice now at all times with that. Like, I want all the people to party all the time, you know, just doing this ridiculous, horrible, like New York accent. And it's like, we get it. You're Australian. I'm sure this is an easier way into doing a convincing American accent, but it's getting a little tiresome now to have to hear this. <laughs> like, Would you like a little more cocaine, Diego? She's like, like one notch away from the dice voice when he used to do. <laughs> Do, do you have pastrami or roast beef? It's the same voice. Um, but she's doing coke with this guy who's the main guy in the movie. Is this Latino guy playing, I presume, like a Valentino-type silent movie star. We've never seen this guy in any... I don't know how you make the jump from never being in a movie to being the biggest, you know, the star of a movie with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. So naturally, I watch that and I'm furious at the guy as if I were in the running or something. But it just annoys me when someone cuts the line like that. And... The rest of this trailer is just debauchery, and it's so annoying. It's like she's like, "Who wants to see me wrestle a snake?" And Pitt's like, "Hell yeah!" And Pitt's in there with a greasy stash, and that he's in Inglorious. Be- like I think Pitt is great. He's usually such a relaxing, chill presence, such a Gen X icon. The guy's like sixty-five years old, and you still see him. Like he's still Mister Nineteen Ninety-Five slacker guy with the wrist, the wispy goatee, who'd be on his way to the Radiohead show. Never mind that he's like he's like the age of like James Cagney was in ragtime but you know he's our permanent gen x embodiment i guess and he's so chill and everything and usually even a movie as bad as bullet train a movie that i found kind of strident and annoying um he's he kind of gets you through it because he's so likable and he's got that charm he's always got the dip in to be pit to be pit you always got to have the dip he's always got like a dip of copenhagen or it looks like i don't even know if the guy chews but he has that permanent chew look in his in his lower lip and he's like chill with the voice you know don't condescend to me you know he's doing that with the with the lower lip he's pit man but sometimes he is off his game and smug and smarmy kind of in the oceans movies to some degree but especially i i think i many people will agree well many people will disagree with me on this um i like inglorious bastards a lot i think he's kind of the false note in there i think all the stuff with landa with you know christoph waltz with melanie laurent um diane kruger uh the what's his name the guy from rush uh that dude you know who i mean the German guy, Daniel Brühl. They're all great. Pitt is kind of hamming it up in like bad movie star mode in a way that to me is a little, I don't know. If I, if I remember, like, that was always my, I've gotten over, I've had 13 years to get over it, but I remember like Bastards was like, oh, it's going to be his Dirty Dozen. It's going to be his war movie with the all-star cast. And then you got like BJ Novak and <laughs> Eli Roth. To me, it was such a come down from like Pulp Fiction where like every person in the cast of Pulp Fiction was like some great actor or some someone who's just huge to Gen Xers like Willis was in there or Stoltz or everyone at every corner of that movie was somebody really awesome and then Inglorious Bastards to get like the guy from the office was kind of a letdown and um what's his name the kid from Freaks and Geeks I just I don't know that the pit parts of that movie were never my favorite part of Bastards and he's in sort of smug mode there and in this he looks so pleased with himself just to be clocking in 
And there's this part on this balcony that's in the trailer that just dies, just dies every time I see it, like never gets a laugh. He does this little like scat song. He's, he's pumping up the Latino guy with this little speech about Hollywood and what Hollywood means to him. And when he came to Hollywood, they didn't like actors and dogs, but he showed him how it was done. And, you know, he, like he's this big, smooth, put together guy. And then they cut back and he does this little dance in his underwear and goes, cut to cut to cut to cut to cut and then falls over on the falls over the balcony like he's the chick from Octopussy and it bombs every time I hope this movie has better scenes than that but in this movie J- Damien Chazelle is a sheen thief he's a sheen thief he stole PTA sheen he's doing a shtick he's doing his act I hear it's three hours and ten minutes and another and another thing I just thought of some more shit that annoys me about Damien Chazelle is he annoyed me on one of those Hollywood reporter roundtables. Do you know what those are at like Oscar time? Uh every year they have a roundtable hosted by one or two interviewers from the trade Hollywood reporter, and they have likely nominees or people who had hot button movies throughout that year to talk about you know, their movies, their Oscar chances, their life, whatever. And Chazelle was there as part of a really weird one. It's a really awkward. Some of those are very entertaining. Um, and some of them are, you know, it has a dinner for five quality, if you remember that show. But some of them are very awkward. And this one was particularly awkward because it had three kind of alpha big dogs in the room who didn't gel at all. It had Oliver Stone. This must have been 2016, I assume, because it was the year uh, Stone was there for Snowden and uh, Mel Gibson was there for Hacksaw Ridge and Denzel. So you had Denzel, Oliver Stone and Mel Gibson, three terrifying dudes with big egos and who had big movies out and they were definitely the boss and then they had a couple other filmmakers and Chazelle was there but the 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 main thing I remember about it is those three main dudes did not seem to you know nobody was working there was no chemistry there like Gibson was trying to riff and do his mad Mel routine and Denzel didn't seem to really like him and (laughs) gee I wonder why and Oliver Stone wasn't his usual bombastic self he seemed kind of amused by everybody but wasn't really going in on it very well and sometimes Sometimes Denzel, we love movie star Denzel, but in interviews, he can be a little, uh, a little, I don't know. It's, he's not the, you're not getting the equalizer. You're getting the guy who goes on Oprah and he's way more philosophical and a little more boring than you would want. Uh, And any, but one good part is they do a whip around about their first job and a job that shaped them. And of course, like Oliver Stone talks about, you know, being in Vietnam, having been having been an infantryman in Vietnam. And even though he was, he came from a place of privilege, he wanted to serve and all this and talks about that, how it shaped him, his life, his movies, his politics, his point of view. And Denzel Washington talks about, he was a garbage man. He was making ends meet as a garbage man before he became an actor. And Mel Gibson talks about this kind of hard scrabble, New York childhood. And then the displacement of going back and forth to Australia. And they all give off, a sense of a life lived like actors and like filmmakers used to have. And, you know, they all have kind of interesting stories about their background and they whip it around to Damien Chazelle who's sitting there looking like John Mayer. And he's, you know, obviously not cutting the same swath as the other guys. And they're like, well, what was your first formative job? And he's like, Oh, I did a unpaid rewrite on the last exorcism too. And I'm like, that's your first job, dude. You never, that's all you could contribute. You never like unloaded a truck or fixed, I don't know. I mean, tell, tell us you fixed a tire, a flat tire on the side of the road or something. Uh, it definitely did not, you know, it, it seemed like kind of a kid who precocious movie kid, uh, who didn't have the same, 
Uh, you know what I'm getting at. It just it just annoyed me. Another thing that annoys me about that Babylon trailer, as long as I'm going and I've made the whole podcast, I hate that bad jazz. There's this bad jazz, and I, is that David Oyelowo, or is it a guy who looks like him, who's got a trumpet, and there's this loud, annoying trumpet, and it plays and it escalates through the trailer as we see all this swirling debauchery that's so very obviously, in addition to trying to be Paul Thomas Anderson, and not looking anything like 1927. It's also trying to be uh, of Wall Street with all the partying and the sex and the drugs and the, you know, it's it's just it seems like a guy doing an imitation of the guys before him, which I guess is what, you know, obviously that's what PTA and Tarantino were at various points. So, again, I'm being hypocritical not to like it from this dude. Um but yeah, and it also like I, I can't seize on this enough that it doesn't look like 1927. Like I know in our heads, we think that in 1927 everyone went around and it looked like an old timey movie, and everyone was in black and white and looked like FDR or Clara Bow or something, and it was in like you know grainy scratchy like your life. You'd go to the kitchen to make tea or something, and it would be all black and white and scratchy, and your, your voice would be like, "Hey, I'm gonna go make some tea. I'm gonna go over to the kitchen, yeah." And everyone, it was like an old timey movie. So so everyone's life, you just sounded like Osgood Perkins. I get that that wasn't how it went, but it would have adhered to the fashions and the sensibilities and the vocal cadence of the time. Not Margot Robbie gacked out doing this cokehead uh, patter in a and they're in the club, and you know the club has like lens flares, and it looks like they're in Studio Fifty Four when it's nineteen twenty seven, and she's wearing like a low cut gown, like she's you know a model in nineteen seventy nine, but it's supposed to didn't look like that it's ridiculous it annoys me and that sax is cranking up and there's this part where Pitt's dragging the dude out of a car and it's so so clearly the quaalude scene from wolf of wall street and um that escalating trumpet it just it did and they play this note over and over as they swirl the camera around and different clips come faster and faster and i guess the audience is supposed to be like oh this is such a wild um kaleidoscope of fun and it has the effect of annoying me and i can read the room when i'm in these movie theaters everyone resents this trailer it's annoying it's so trying it's trying so hard um so in other words like stay tuned for my inevitable five-star review in a few months where I'm like, it reminded me of when I wanted to be an actor. Five stars. But for the time being, I hate it. It's the worst part of going to the movies now. Anyway, if I stalled long enough, I did promise you current movie reviews. Let's get to Black Adam. I saw Black Adam, uh, The Rock, here, Dwayne Johnson. He's Black Adam, although they call him, what's his other name for, through most of the movie? That's only the name they give him at the end, and he's like, catchy name or something like that. I think he's Tet Adam or something like that. And um, he was, we have a prologue set in the olden times and very much in Zack Snyder vision. I mean, even though Zack Snyder's not the director of this movie, it's that Joan Colette Sarah guy, uh, the Zack Snyder influence is always over the DC movies, which I've come to terms with the fact that I think I might just like the DC ones better, even though I'll acknowledge like Marvel movies are at least they have that baseline competence. They have all always like the best actors. There's, you know, they're off an assembly line, but they seem to make people happy. I'm not really a Marvel hater. I'm just not much of a, not a huge comic book movie guy. When I was a kid, I'm always like, I, I like comic book movies. I love Superman too. That's always like my go-to, you know, wrong again, wrong again, Zod. 
Luther, you poisonous snake. Like the part where he cooks the souffle in the TV version with his X-ray vision. I love Superman too, and I love that that fight in Midtown Manhattan or, or Midtown Metropolis. And as a kid, I remember thinking that was so state of the art and so huge. And man, they must have gone into like Times Square for real with hundreds of cameras and had all the extras and shot it live on the on the mean streets in New York. And when you watch it now, it's so clearly backlot and the Marlboro truck and the throwing Zod into the Coke sign. And I love all the bad Richard Lester comedy in that sequence where it's like, uh, you know, the guy with the ice cream, the wind blows, the one guy, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Superman didn't even do nothing. That's my favorite scene in that movie. Um, I thought of that part because Black Adam is that scene for like an hour and a half. So much of this movie, it's a superhero movie. The Rock is this this hero character from olden BC times who gets he challenges the king for this crown made of this rare mineral and this crown has superpowers as they always do in comic book movies. He gets imprisoned and then in modern times in this where his kingdom used to be is now this modern Middle Eastern city. He gets dug up somehow and a bad guy who's like a really bad ripoff of Art Malik and True Lies. Like this has a fairly whack villain. He wants this crown that's going to give him all these powers to restore order to his kingdom or to his city, which is now run by some like shady some oppressive government agency patrols the city and everything. He wants to have all these unlimited powers and black Adam's got to team up with Hawkman and this whole, his crew of the, uh, what is it? The justice league or the justice society or justice Academy or whatever. You guys know this shit way better than me. You should be reviewing this. Um, and this kid, Noah Centineo was there. Some girl whose hair turns into Spumoni. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is there is, I, I like Pierce Brosnan in it. He brings some gravitas. There is a plot point that there's going to be, a decision at the end of the movie or someone's fate at the end of the movie that is telegraphed like Western Union. It's like Colonel Mortimer banging out that telegraph and for a few dollars more doesn't hit it as hard as we see this thing coming. But nonetheless, Brosnan brings like some serious, you know, he brings his charisma and, you know, he's, he's just so suave and entertaining. The Rock is in pretty good form here, although what I'm getting at about that Superman two thing is once they start the fighting and Hawkman shows up and Noah, whatever his name is, can turn into this big giant guy. And then he shrinks back down. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I think I sort of zoned out on both the kids, the explanation of the kids and the girl's superpower and Brosnan's helmet, because it's delivered via like an eight second Skype cameo by Henry Winkler. And I was just, I think I was just taken aback. Was that Henry Winkler? And then I forgot about it. And then yesterday I was at work. I was just going through a normal work day and I was like, did I hallucinate Henry Winkler being in the Black Adam movie? He comes on and tells some backstory, and I think he's related to the kid somehow. And that Noah Centineo kid, I think he he might be popular with uh, young girls. He was on Disney, and he was in uh, probably one of those Netflix teen movies or something. But uh, he's very much a cross between junior Mark Ruffalo and a bad Eric Estrada. I don't know if we're stuck with this kid in movies, but he and the rest of the Justice uh, Society or whatever they are, they team up grudgingly with The Rock to fight the bad guy. And then from that point, they have what seems to be the same sustained fight in the same locale for almost the entire movie. They just, and it's broad daylight in these copper skies and everyone can float the comfortable way, which I call it when the superheroes like Magneto and some of the later X-Men movies or, um, uh, 
Wonder Woman and uh, the Superman with Brandon Routh, where they just kind of stand floating or they kind of move around sort of standing erect instead of like the traditional Superman laying down on your stomach flight position with the arms out. They could just kind of these guys just kind of casually cruise around with their arms down at their side, floating around and they just hover above the city, occasionally dropping like some SWAT guy, day player, uh, and they just bicker up in the skies while they float, and they just keep floating and keep fighting and having the same CGI glop fight, superhero fight with their powers, and the one Hawkman obviously has the hawk wings, which reminds you of a lot of uh, Falcon from uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. He's played by Aldous Hodge. He's pretty good in the movies. You know, he's doing a good... Everyone's doing their job. It looks like it's these things are supposed to look. It just was strange to me. Like, you didn't want to mix it up. You've got a great world of fantasy and superheroes that can do everything. And you just hover in a Middle Eastern city. You know, one of those great cities where you, everyone in the... All the, the uh, tenements, all the apartments, all around... Everyone has their satellite dish and lots of wires. Like, you're in Peter Berg's The Kingdom. And they that kind of city. And they just hover... And fight. And then at one point, they have to drop the rock off somewhere. So they take the whatever the flying vessel is and they drop him off in this, you know, frozen water river. So I was like, oh, a new scene finally, an hour and a half into the movie. And then they fly back and keep having the same fight above the same place. It's just like, mix it up a little bit. But it was okay for what it is. I actually didn't zone out too bad in this. I think DC. They have that Snyder influence and they have the leaden story points of like kind of like bad Michael Bay. Sometimes there's just something meatheaded about DC that is clunky as it is. I sort of recognize it more than that streamlined genial. We're all in this. Uh, let's get the gang together. Uh, collectivist uh, Marvel. Good time. You know, it's so uh, it just feel, Marvel just always kind of feels like TV. These always have that bad. I don't know why Warner Brothers decided these all needed to look like Kingsford briquette sheen. It's like half copper, half nickel, and then half soapy black gauze. All of them, I, it's inherited from the Snyder aesthetic. From even at the beginning of this, this prologue set in the olden times, there's a they kick some guy off of a mountain, and it looks exactly like the the famous kick that Gerard Butler does in Three Hundred. Um, and people have the white chalk on their face, and it, it's lit exactly like that. It's like half the scenes have that burnished copper glow, and then half of them have that like, and some of them have that grungy black Batman haze. I don't know. That's just the DC aesthetic. I don't know why why you wouldn't go with like your comic book movies. I don't I don't know why you want to look that inky and dark. But uh, that's what they've gone with. It's it was fine. I mean, it doesn't stick. You come out and you're like shrug. Good enough. Whatever. It was okay. It was fine. Uh, I saw Amsterdam, one of the big bombs of the year. Although I don't even know how you quantify it. Obviously, it cost a fortune. It's got every working actor in the world in it, much to the chagrin of film Twitter, because David O. Russell is one of those directors that I mean, maybe for good reason, but I. To some degree, I'm like, you guys have known about this. I guess a lot of it is, you know, coming home to roost, all these bad behavior stories that for older people, we've at least, I don't know, to me, it's like, can I get that angry about shit that I heard about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but we live in a perpetual cycle of like young people on Twitter discovering things and being outraged. Oh my God, did you hear about this? And I'm like, yeah, it happened like when I was three and they're, you know, they're fired up about it now and it snowballs and, um, um, I'm not defending David O. Russell. It's just like he's been known to be a jerk for 25 years, but now it's reached the point where we're canceling people like this who were regarded as like film geniuses 10, 15 years ago. I'm not saying that 
Oh, Russell's thing was weird because he had those kind of quirky little comedy movies in the 90s. He had Spanking the Monkey. He had uh, Flirting with Disaster, which was like a big deal, I remember. Maybe it seemed like it to me because that movie came out like in the first month. I, I was in Los Angeles and I was getting to see these oddball indie movies for, you know, early because I, I was from Pittsburgh and we'd have to wait four months for these limited release. So I felt like really cool. And I remember I went to the Century City AMC 14 at the time and... And I was there, it was maybe the second or third movie I ever saw in L.A., and everyone was just rolling in the aisles at this quirky family comedy that was anarchic, and it had uh, Brolin and Stiller and Arquette, and it seemed like, and Taylor Leone, and it, then Three Kings. It seemed like that was kind of the arc back then. You do your couple little indie movies, like James Mangold would have Heavy and then Copland, and then he was making blockbusters, or then he was making, uh, you know, big studio movies. So Three Kings, and that was one of from that year of 1999 where you had all those cool mainstream movies that were kind of edgy and it was like just considered i did a podcast about it, it was considered a really really great year then to me it's like Roe russell sort of became hit and miss for most of the aughts and then he had i heard huckabees but then in like the early 2010s he had that run where every year maybe two years he was like a guarantee this guy was in the oscar race and somehow it was like he had become this elder statesman off like two quirky screwball comedies maybe three and three kings and then suddenly it was like he had the fighter and he had the silver linings playbook and uh joy was american hustle was in there too and he seemed like a big deal and it was you know you'd get to the end of the year it was like oh the david o russell movie's coming and you know somewhere in there there was that video of him yelling at Lily Tomlin. There was a report he groped his niece and he just seemed like kind of an unsavory asshole. And we've reached that point again where not just the cancel, I'm not going to do the usual cancel chat, but among film people, I think the young people, there's been one after another. It's been like, go get him, man. Like some of the guys from that era, just generally there seems to be sort of a push. Um, Sometimes not always that nefarious like it's not always about cancel reasons but in general they're at least among young film fans there's a downplaying of some of these guys from the mid 90s who are kind of older gen x or you know or younger boomers maybe who all kind of blew up around the same time and they were all very male directors and for years and years you had to you know there was the church of like you know worshiping at fincher and you know uh tarantino and the coens and um Paul Thomas Anderson, although PTA, PTA, I think, was on solid ground until the licorice pizza age debate. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Um, that relationship between the Hoffman kid and um, uh, Haim in that movie was just I, I don't think anyone I, I bet PTA himself was probably taken aback because he thought made this sweet little memory movie of the early 70s. And uh, I don't think I think next time around he won't get the usual warm welcome because I think he was kind of the sainted guy among film Twitter, especially the master. But and then very much so after Phantom Thread, which I think is a movie for young film you know, aesthetic film snob types like in that movie, they found a movie that was kind of as autistic as some of their tastes are like this idea of Vicky Crepes. And she's this queen who's keeping DDL in his place. And they kind of thought that was like maybe a fantastic, you know, sort of a riff on what Paul Thomas Anderson's relationship with Maya Rudolph, another sainted queen was like in his real life as this sort of doting, you know, good solid guy who, you know, used to be the party animal from Boogie Nights and the Fiona Apple dating guy. And now he was everything about uh, Fando Thread is so in their wheelhouse. I don't know why I'm going off on this, but 
my point being, I think he's probably the next one. Tarantino's their white whale to get rid of. And even when there's no nefarious behavior or activity, there's just an interest in kind of maybe giving a shot to some new voices. And in doing so, there's been, to me, something I don't enjoy very much is how hard there's been an attempt to bring down some of the guys who I think were really great. But now it's like, you know, they want to spread the wealth and that's fine. Um None of that has anything to do with Amsterdam itself. Just that I think there was something in the air. This movie, this movie would have bombed regardless. Like, uh, you know, anybody, the Russo brothers or someone could have directed this. It would still bomb. Uh, but it is, you know, it's big scale. It's got this cast of hundreds. You, you knew from the trailer that they didn't know what to make of it because you have all these ostensible movie stars. But as you can probably tell from how many of them there are in it, there's a lot of smaller parts and people kind of drift in and out famously. Like, and this has already been spoiled all over Twitter, but Taylor Swift is prominently featured in the trailers and she's not in the movie for very long, if you get my drift. Um, and that was one of the reasons... Th- that to tie it back together, they were saying people like Taylor Swift or Rami Malek or whoever who have been progressive about other things or they're a certain type of celebrity for them to turn around and work with a director known for sort of bad behavior. And that was one of the reasons they were coming at this movie that none of that has anything to do with the quality of the movie, which uh, other just the predisposition to hate it by everybody. I didn't think it was that bad. I'm not a David O. Russell hater, but I think people he's he's run his course with people, as I was saying, but uh it's kind of a thr- in a way it's weird because it's kind of his frenetic screwball thing except it's not really that funny and it's really kind of overplotted for a plot that ultimately isn't that complicated it's you know John David Washington Margot Robbie and uh Christian Bale Christian Bale being more so the lead in this they're three inseparable friends who met overseas during World War 1 and they've come back for various reasons back to New York and there's this crime their old general or their old military commander from overseas uh, has been killed and Taylor Swift's the daughter of that guy and they want to investigate what happened and there's this conspiracy involving nefarious figures and Robert De Niro shows up at a certain point as a general that they need to co-op to help them solve this crime um it's a it's it's long it's like it's like two hours and 15 minutes and it feels like it's like five hours you just can't believe how long you're sitting there which is i guess is never a good sign but that said i i enjoy i love big dumb cameos i just want big cameos that's like i'm so easily entertained and celebrity and they come celebrities come out and i'm like oh look it's anya taylor joy it's uh zoe saldana and everyone kind of comes into this movie and does a few minutes worth of business and then mostly you're left with christian bale mugging like a jackass like he is at a full 11 in this with the stupid faces. He's got a glass eye that keeps popping out. So, and it's shot by Chivo or old buddy Chivo, the Mexican cinematographer guy of the Inuritu type movies who does that fisheye lens kind of thing. Uh, and here he's, he's adapted a golden sheen, which isn't really that, you know, when they do those period movies, it always has to be beige and gold and brown. Like most David O. Russell movies are fairly gray and, uh, I I used to think there was an era where I thought David O. Russell's the next Scorsese and not in terms of the thematics or the kind of movies. I just thought that he was trying to ape a certain uh, Scorsese look from 
color of money and Goodfellas, a certain sharkskin pool hall aesthetic with like slightly smoky rooms and grays and that sharkskin color, kind of a Levinson look too. I thought that was his aesthetic he was going for through most of his career, not counting like Three Kings, which is very uh, bleach bypass and very grainy and very has a very particular look that was in at that time, after, especially after Private Ryan. There were all those movies where they punched up the grain and oversaturated or desaturated, depending on the scene. It had that very particular turn of the millennium uh, look to it. But by and large, I think David O. Russell is kind of a gray and blue director, and this is just butterscotch haze, and so Chivo is shooting it with that lens. So you have Christian Bale's big, stupid face looking like John Glover with uh, like a, a bulimic John Glover sticking his face in the camera doing mugging faces. He's kind of in love with Zoe Saldana, but he's got this buzzkill wife played by Andrea R- uh, Riseborough and Robbie seems to have some sort of since she's come back from the war, she has some sort of illness that may or not be um, foisted upon her by her nefarious, possibly nefarious family. Um, Anya Taylor Joy's in there squaring off with Robbie, which was a delight. Like this was a movie I was so excited about just because it has like three or four of my favorite hot babes in it. And I am one of the only idiots in the world as a guy. Not many guys do this. Like guys don't go to the movies Full, let's be honest. Guys don't go to the movies because the girl is pretty. Like, you get the dudes together, you know, historically. It was like, oh, go see some cop movie or go see some Marvel movie now. Or, oh, get the bros together and go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It wasn't like dudes historically. Oh, I got to go see The Eye because it has Jessica Alba, you know? That, but that's the kind of dumb shit I do. It's like, I had like a Britney Murphy phase when, when you know, R.I.P. When she was around, she was doing these terrible rom-coms like Little Black Book. And I was like, I have to see see it to Christina Ricci or whoever. And I would have to go see their terrible middling domestic dramas and bad rom-coms just because the girls were so hot. And I'm so obsessed with like celebrities and actresses and pretty girls. Um, from movies and TV, and it's like, I don't know, no other dude is like, hey, let's get the bros together and go see Margot Robbie because she looks good in a movie, but I will go, every frame of Margot Robbie is in a movie, I have to go see it, or Anya Taylor-Joy, Taylor Swift is in this too, and I don't know, I'm telling that story, I'm realizing it makes me sound like I'm Vincent D'Onofrio in the cell or something, like latching myself up to the chains to consume their essence or something by, by uh, consuming every media image of them but it's some weird thing that I don't know I I can't explain it but I get hyped when there's like a bunch of really hot actresses who are in a movie that I like that I have a big crush on and I have to go see it so the idea that they're all in one place here Zoe Saldana's in it too she's very pretty in this Uh, she's actually comes out more charming than some of the other like uh but Taylor Swift is very fleeting in this. Gets You've seen the thing on Twitter. She gets run over by a car like eight minutes in. It's not much. Uh, this is way too twisty for something that the, the ultimate conspiracy was so obvious. And I assume there'd be something like some other level to it. But no. Uh, but as a fan of mugging and celebrity walkthroughs and uh, frenetic bullshit and, and, you know, you know, over caffeinated director doing too much despite the fact that it feels 900 hours long and isn't good, I'm still glad I saw it. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else, but it had a certain, something about its sensibility was on my wavelength. Mike Myers is in it, and he's very, I always like seeing him because I feel like he doesn't have a very big part, but he comes through with Michael Shannon a couple times, and I just really enjoy it. He was someone who kind of meant a lot. Like he was, you know, I loved SNL and comedy and right around the time, you know, Wayne's World, that was so formative when I was a teenager and him and Dana Carvey. And then he, when he started doing the gold member movies, he started to get in that, you know, 
ego comedian when the comic guy starts having a big ego and you could just imagine him dressed in on set as guru pitka throwing his weight around and there seemed like there was a great uh arrow where he lost the room and i don't even know if that's gone away because he has some netflix show that's god awful where he's like playing all the characters it's sort of a sci-fi it's called the pen you can look it up something pentaverit or something like that and it's fairly awful but when he gets a chance to kind of kick ass like when he's in glorious bastards and he comes through and he does great it's like i'm always i just i'm so happy to see him i wish he would do more stuff or do something a little better but uh, that was that was a treat i just i liked all the actors i don't know maybe i am a hundred years old because when there's movie stars and familiar faces going through like it's a bad Hal Needham movie <laughs> like that I'm just in my glory watching shit like that uh, I saw Smile which was fine I thought that was pretty good I, the main thing about Smile that horror it's a horror movie you see this creepy smile and you commit suicide and that passes it on to the next person who gets haunted for like seven days they're you know living in this fear of they see things and see nefarious things coming for them they finally commit suicide they have to do it in front of somebody and it's very much it follows it's very much the ring I thought it was well done i was with it all the way through until the very end where i thought it just got a little long in the tooth it didn't need to be two full hours and there's a last act that reminded me she, the girl the the actress sosie bacon who's the daughter of kira sedgwick and kevin bacon she kind of looks more like kevin but kind of acts more like uh kira sedgwick she's fantastic in the movie and i'm usually like i can't stand nepotism cases it's like oh you're kevin bacon's daughter it must have been hard for you to break through and to jump the line to use a term i uh, used earlier she's starring in a paramount movie as a first big it's like man that must be nice um but she's very good and her performance is affecting um and the horror stuff was okay it seemed like to me a lot of jump scares a lot of creepy music and it was fine i think maybe i'm surprised it's doing that well because it's maybe marginally overrated and the last act which i'm not going to give away but it reminded me of there's a part in Final Destination where Devin Sawa, Sawa locks himself in a cabin and she does something here that kind of reminded me of so much of that. And then it becomes autopilot and very much literalizes something. You know, they all these new fancy horror movies. It's always, oh, it's about trauma. It's about trauma. Here they literally have characters going, this is about my trauma, which I thought was way too on the nose. But it was nice. It was paramount. It was clear sheen. It got the job done. Uh, there's a part <laughs> with, a, with a cat that was very inter- There was Earlier this year, there was the Firestarter remake, which isn't very good. Uh, but I it got me to watch the first movie of the guy who made the Firestarter remake. I think it's called... I want to say it's called The Vigil. It's about this guy who has to stand. It's a Jewish tradition where you stay with a corpse the first night of their death in this apartment in New York and all these creepy things start happening. That movie was very good. And I was glad, you know, you can, if you see the new terrible fire Firestarter, you can see his aesthetic in there and just see what a bad match he was for this movie. Cause Firestarter is kind of an outlandish Stephen King story and it should have, it should have adventure and all these other elements and kind of over the top stuff. And with the new Firestarter, they made it very small and contained and very uh, low stakes, it seemed. And they took it down too low, too uh, slow burn and it just it didn't work for me but there's a part where the little our new little fire starter who's playing Drew Barrymore is just a hateful little brat in this and she nukes a cat like she's hanging around a dumpster for some reason and a stray just goes 
and she she just zaps that thing like Zod and incinerates it. And it was one of the best bad laughs I had in a movie this year. And there's a bit in Smile that reminded me of that cat's fate. Uh, it was it's neck and neck for Cat of the Year between Smile and after the cat reveal in this, she the main actress takes a big tumble into a glass table that just it had me rolling. So all the horror and all the spooky shit and all the trauma, I'm just gonna remember her falling through that table like a dumbass. I would give Smile a mild thumbs up. I guess the moment's kind of passed now that Halloween's over, but it, it was fun, I would say. Banshees of Inisherin or Inisherin, I think it's Inisherin. Uh, I liked this quite a bit, but it was not what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be very in Bruges-like and be very rollicking and ball-busting. And these two great actors, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, who are so fun together and have so much chemistry and charisma, both of them. I'm not gonna. This is still in very limited release, so I'm not gonna do a very extensive review on it. But it takes a turn that I don't know if I. Some idiot spoiled what where it goes. Two idiots actually, and so I knew it was coming. And I think if I hadn't known when it happened, I would have been put off by it more than I was. But the movie itself is a little more of a dirge than I thought it was. It's certainly funny in parts, but the, Martin McDonough is known for great dialogue, and this was supposed to be such a great script, and these characters and everything. The Carrie Condon stuff in it is fantastic. She's great in the movie as Colin Farrell's kind of sad sack sister who wants to spread her wings. Farrell's great, obviously, Brendan Gleeson, and they're two pub friends, best friends for life, who, you know, one day Brendan Gleeson is just tired of Colin Farrell's boring stories, which is very funny to me for a million reasons. He just he just gets sick of listening to his idiot friend and just wants to be left alone to do his music. And Colin Farrell just can't get over being kind of dumped, uh, ghosted by his friend. It just becomes more and more annoying to Gleason. And Gleason's reactions get kind of outlandish in the movie. I just thought it was going to be more... Uh, ramshackle or more like i said rollicking and you know pub humor and the guy and it's it has a very morose quality and it's very much about like grim fate and you know the, the locale of the ireland in this period and um there's there's like an ongoing reference to the civil war which is maybe a little on the nose i it's one of the big heavy hitters of the oscar season i was primed Actually, you know what? I was going to say I was primed to love it. I assumed I would love it. I was going to the theater to see George Clooney mugging like a jerk off in Ticket to Paradise, and I missed it. And I was like, well, I guess I better see that Banshees movie, which is great, but has very much a certain sour mood to it and is a mean spirit in some parts and a lyrical beauty in others. And all I wanted to see was Clooney dancing to bust a move or whatever, whatever 90s jam they give Clooney in Ticket to Paradise. I haven't seen it yet. Someone said it was CNC Music Factory, but the trailer made it look like he was dancing to a house of pain. I love that Clooney is like Clooney was like 32 in 1992. Why are they always giving him like these early nineties, like hip hop songs to jam out to Clooney? I, I also can't picture George Clooney listening to music at all, unless it's like Bobby Darren or Sinatra or something. But anyway, Banshee's, uh, very good, but not quite what I was expecting. Uh, to use the film Twitter cliche, I've had to marinate over it. It's a movie I might like better in hindsight and would love to see again. It has a very particular sensibility that I'm surprised is catching on as much as it did. Because, you know, Three Billboards became very, his last movie became very controversial because the idea of Sam Rockwell's racist character getting this redemption, which as I watched it, this did not plague me. I don't, I became a thing on film Twitter that... Uh, I don't know, in a weird way, I might have... Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards, to me, were kind of an easier sit. They weren't as... This this one has a punishing element to it that those... 
I went with. I, I went. I made the leap with the characters and three billboards, even though there were some sloppy moments in it. I, you know, it's it very much wouldn't be popular to say I liked it better than Banshees, but I, I'm haunted by the idea that I might have. I don't know. I never thought three billboards deserved that big horrible backlash it got. But maybe that's and it, you know, in Bruges, while very funny, that's been a long. I haven't seen that since it came out, so I would have to revisit it. I know sometimes people talk about it in these glowing, hallowed terms, like it's like one of their all-time favorites, and I remember it being very fun and those two guys being great, but I, I it's maybe that sensibility, maybe something's off with me that I'm thinking is two bombs are just as good as the ones that everyone loves, because there's two there in the middle that everyone seemed to hate that I was kind of okay with. Lastly, I kind of did want to talk about Blonde, the Andrew Dominic movie. I know it's a movie that's completely dead in the water now. It's been out. It came on Netflix, what, like six, eight weeks ago. It had a very small theatrical release, which I would have loved to have gone to. I saw it on streaming, but uh, I would have loved to have seen this in a theater because you have Ana de Armas, who's a glamorous movie star. It says Blonde. You got Marilyn Monroe there. And who goes, it, 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 you know, it's for... Uh, streaming but they did because they want to have oscar chances which are they can kiss that goodbye but they put it in some theaters and when you in netflix puts a movie like this out it generally is in art houses and small theaters and this played pretty much exclusively at those kind of theaters in la it would be like the lemley chain and if you know those art house theaters or if they have them in your city you know it's a lot of senior citizens and i would have just i can't even imagine how this thing played because i'm sure a lot of old timers and seniors went they oh it's a nice little Marilyn monroe biopic hoping to hear you know diamonds are a girl's best friend or whatever and they'd be like snapping their fingers a seeing a nice little uh, biopic about their favorite glamorous movie star of their youth and instead you get this pummeling david lynchian uh torture movie that's about the degradation and the humiliation that this very fictionalized version of marilyn monroe uh endured and it's grim and it's a it's a movie that like wants a lot of people a lot of you know blowhards and especially like on twitter and you know feminist-minded people on they were very squeamish about what was going to be in this movie. And it was basically get this movie and the idiot director of it, Andrew Dominic, who's very good. He's a good director, but uh, he definitely did not do himself any favors. Every interview, he kind of gave the worst possible answer you could give in this climate, in this culture. He was just constantly stepping in it. Um, and there was an idea of like, let's a very censorious, if that's even a word, push to kind of just bury this movie. Don't see this movie. Don't talk about it. And who could be a worse person to talk about this punishing uh, non biopic of Marilyn Monroe? But me, because, you know, it's based, by the way, not to give all uh, credit or blame to Andrew Dominic. It is based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates about Marilyn, this fictionalized Marilyn Monroe. And right there out of the, you know, out of the gate there's two things that you can't trust me as an authority on i'm not a big marilyn monroe connoisseur like you know marilyn monroe she's nice but she she was no shannon elizabeth in american pie you know uh and joyce carol oates the extent of my you know and I, i'm not that dumb you know i have an english literature minor and when i went to Pitt, we had to read that short story by joyce carol oates that later became sort of the impetus for the movie uh, smooth talk with treat williams lord darn and it's uh, called where are you going where have you been i think and it's about this very menacing older boy or young man who's kind of a, a rebel, like a, a like a like a badass and a scary dude and a much younger girl, a teenage girl who's 
you know, kind of having to uh, run afoul of this dude who's just sort of skulking and whether she's going to get in the car with him or not. And I remember like we had to read this and it's a classic piece of fiction. And I, I read it at Pitt and I had this T the teacher was like a TA who was like the cool guy was sort of a punk, not a punk uh, look, but you know, like kind of alternative. This was like the early nineties and um, all the girls in the class had a crush on the dude. He's like, we're going to read a little Joyce Carol Oates. You know? <laughs> like, we had to go discuss it with the teach with teach at the beehive there's this place it was why would you know what that is there was this coffee house in pittsburgh uh down where the pit campus was in the 90s and it was where you would go to see the cool indie movies like you'd go see twin peaks Firewalk with me like they had a coffee house and then there was a movie theater in there and you there was when i was in college it was twin peaks was out um i, I eventually saw train spotting there bad lieutenant reservoir dogs a lot of movies like that and then they would have like the late night showings of the wall or blade runner uh but you'd go for the coffee shop end of it, why am I telling you this? I just like to riff boring stories. <laughs> like if you were in college in the early nineties at the height of that alternative era, and like you wanted to go to a coffee house and a beret and a cigarette holder and discuss communist politics or Joyce Carol Oates, you would go to the beehive and I had to meet him. He's like, Hey man, you dig what I'm putting out with this Joyce Carol Oates. And I'm like my big contribution, having read this and I got, I was such a dumb 20 year old or whatever I was. I was like, yeah, man, when I, when I read it, I pictured the main dude as Buddy Reperton. He's like, what's that, man? And I'm like, he's Buddy Reperton, you know, from Christine. So this great piece of fiction, I've always associated it. I just had to bring it down to my dumbass level at 20 years old and tell him. And I ended up talking to the guy about who Buddy Reperton was. And the dude probably thought it was a serial killer. And um, so that's the extent of my Joyce Carol Oates, other than sort of being mystified that she's still around and tweeting at her age, which seems like an awful idea. Anyway, this is not really Marilyn Monroe. It's this sort of... Uh, fantastical or fictionalized version. I mean, she's playing Marilyn Monroe, except, you know, she does have a Cuban accent, which you, you can't, it's kind of hard to block that out. You kind of do after a certain point, but I'm never entirely convinced that I'm not watching Ana de Armas. But the idea was, uh, and also, you know, just to get serious for one second before, you know, it's like, this is such a hard movie to talk about if you're me, because you want to be like the Twitter obnoxious Lex G and, and be like, hey man, Under the Armas is getting the Lexi for best high beams in a movie. And then you have to navigate that and talk about the incredible seriousness and off-putting nature of this movie. Um, you, can't do, you can't do the act, right? You can't be like, what do you do? Keep the set like the meat locker from The Exorcist, you know? Um God, I got to edit that part out before I get canceled. But it's very serious. It's very depressing. It's a dirge. It's very long. Uh, Andrew Dominic isn't he's from down under he's one of the original kings of no comedy from australia maybe like the last 10 15 20 years we've had that slew of guys like david michaud who did the rover is kind of one john hillcote is like maybe the preeminent example of this dutifully masculine australian new zealand down under uh grubby uh masculine intensity he'd made that movie the proposition not dominic but uh john hillcote made i always think of the proposition as kind of the ultimate example of this that like dutiful masculine code of honor where you gotta watch the movie like nailing a spike into your testicles while you pound a birch beer or something um and dominic though is one of the more he i would say is one of the artier of this crew he did the assassination of uh, jesse james by the coward uh, robert ford which is a um, great movie i think it's like one of the near masterpieces or masterpieces of that great year 2007 and in that movie and somewhat in killing them softly he has sort of a fascination with 
being an, uh, an outsider taking on these American myths, whether it's Jesse James or here Marilyn Monroe, but also the genres uh, themselves, you know, very much uh, Jesse James movie is sort of a revisionist Western where, you know, our badass outlaw Jesse James is the movie's just a ticking clock watching this creepy dude played by Casey Affleck. Uh, you know, we know, you know, just just getting more obsessed with them and then in killing them softly. He's sort of deconstructing the American crime movie, the underworld movie. Um, it's, it's nothing unique to say it's a critique of capitalism and American political corruption. Cause kind of every gangster movie is that, but he takes it to a more cellular level, just on a more personal level. The characters are so you think of James Gandolfini in that movie. And you know, you would expect James Gandolfini big star to come in midway through a gangster movie and kick ass or do something really crazy. You know, uh, you don't expect him to, sh- well, I'll just say you don't expect him to show up and just be in a hotel room in a terrible mood, just ranting. And so in that scene, he's just so debauched and hateful and cynical and sleazy and completely over it. And he turned, you know, in that movie, Dominic turns a lot of the expectations on their head. You go back to his first movie, which was Chopper with Eric Bana. It was one of those, it was his movie from down under that kind of put Eric Bana on the map. And he's one of those, it's one of those steamroller performances by Bana where he's this, you know, very bad guy, this over the the top villain who's just so electric and comes into every scene at an 11 and the movie sort of dares you to hang in with this guy it reminded me a lot i mean it predates but it's similar if you've seen the nicholas windig reffin movie bronson with tom hardy it's that same kind of thing like a super magnetic actor just you know doing major league overacting at a fever pitch and creating this like horrible character who's nonetheless so electric that the movie gets to play on you know why we why we're so attracted to these like outlaw type characters um and in blonde here you know i just talked about three his three major narrative movies before this they were all very masculine movies they were breaking down male archetypes male you know in the case of jesse james a legendary iconic uh american mythic figure in this he has the mythic figure of marilyn monroe to deal with although the movie marilyn monroe here is hardly even a protagonist she's just a victim for two hours two hours 40 minutes or whatever it is just shy of three hours and the movie is very punishing and very unrelenting. There are very few um, happy moments, even like the triumphant moments you would expect, like like a like a scene on the set of one of her classic movies, it, like a some like it hot. Well, there'll be a little recreation of that, and then it immediately when they call cut, she's back to you know calling in Toby Huss's her personal doctor to kind of like shoot her back up to to numb the pain and she's screaming at people and having tantrums and nothing in this movie is happy it's an assault basically from the beginning uh and you can't help but think of david lynch and wonder why david lynch kind of skates on this historically because he very much has that obsession with these stories of women especially sometimes in the case of like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire about show business and exploitation of women. And there's a larger theme going through pretty much most of his movies about violence towards women, going back to like Blue Velvet and, you know, especially Twin Peaks, both Fire Walk With Me and The Return. You, I always kind of had that question, like when Twin Peaks The Return was on, there were people on Twitter every week that were like, I can't believe such a thing of beauty and magnificence is in my world. I can't believe this great work of beauty is here to like get us through this horrible time. And I was, it's such a great show, but I would think like, how's he going to pass on the fact that the whole show is like very, there's so much abuse and uh, violence enacted towards women. I was like, yeah, this was a thing of beauty that's getting you through the world where like half the show is a woman getting beaten up. It was, it was a very harsh show. I thought, and it seemed like strange that people, he sort of got a pass on that or it didn't seem like that was the element that people dwell on. And 
I think historically Lynch, it might with Twin Peaks, the return, it might've just been that thing got in just under the wire. I think a year later when we were in a different climate uh, and, he, and even the little things like he's casting himself opposite these hot babes, like David Lynch casting himself with Monica Bellucci and it's tongue in cheek. Cause he's seen as like a kindly and goofy old man. If like Michael Bay did that, it would be so it would not be taken as well. I think Lynch, just on an extracurricular level outside of the the text of the films themselves, he gets a pass because he has this persona. He's cultivated this persona as this daffy crackpot middle American uh, wacky guy who does the weather reports. And you can picture him getting his getting his Sunday or his milkshake at Bob's big boy pounding his 80 cups of coffee and his cigs with his wacky magician hair and shades and his suit. And, you know, I saw him. At uh, Inland Empire, it was one of the few movies I, I I went to the AFI Fest in L.A. It's like some film festival, and I saw it early, and he showed up after the movie, and that movie is just an assault for three hours. Uh, a lot of people were, you know, when you go to that kind of thing, not everybody in there is a Lynch fanatic, so a lot of people were sort of, you know, it was a grueling sit for a lot of people. And then after the movie's over, they bring him out for a Q&A, and, you know, the art-type people in the audience are, oh, it's David Lynch, and he had such a, you know, people going nuts just to see him and he was up there like he was like such a wise sage and they're like David David you want to explain the the backstory of the Laura Dern and this and the mythology and the use of this and that and he just goes I like trees and they're like, oh, you like trees. And the whole place is like clapping like seals. Like, he likes trees. He likes trees. And like, you want to expand on that, David? Long pause. He goes, I like trees. And that's David Lynch. You know, he's wacky. He's the glad hand. He's, you know, our lovable goofball. So this, the elements in his movies where there's this dark, horrible undercurrent and this abuse and this, uh, you know, mistreatment of women and the, the corruption and the suburbia and the, the dark underside of our society and everything. Um, we think of it as like, you know, the movies have a built in also something that uh, blonde does not have. It has a built in lightness. There's always the David Lynch, the tr not just the crackpot persona that we know in real life, but his movies have that too. A certain aw shucks Midwestern earnestness. Some of the movies don't have it as much. Some of the movies are far more corrupt and so, so much darker, like Lost Highway, I would say, or Inland Empire. But in a lot of them, you still get the David Lynch who believes in corny American, uh, you know, iconography, like the end of Wild at Heart after this dark, horrible ride and you get through Bobby Peru and all this stuff. You know, you get an Elvis number with the Wizard of Oz visiting Nicolas Cage for that ending. At the end of Blue Velvet, you get that Laura Dern, you know, monologue about seeing the birds or whatever she's on about and kind of that white picket fence American suburbia is restored. And you can ask the question in those movies to what degree that is. I don't think it's as cut and dried as like David, you know, there was, there've been these arguments like David Lynch is really a, like a conservative kind of guy. And he's just obsessed with the dark thing, but he likes closing the door shut through his art. And I don't really think it's that simple. I think there's definitely uh, room for some ambiguity. I mean, David, I'm going like 10 minutes about David Lynch here, probably because it's more fun to talk about David Lynch than this grueling movie. But there is that overlap. There is that Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire and Twin Peaks quality to the movie. But what David Lynch has, obviously, and he's a very singular artist, it's not fair to compare. I mean, Andrew Dominic, though, I would say is a great filmmaker in his own regard. And no matter how offensive a lot of the things in this movie, uh, I don't really like throwing somebody's art out just because a lot of people on Twitter, you know, got in a huff about it. But in a David Lynch movie, you would have those moments to get you through it, those moments of beauty and earnestness. And this movie is every single scene in it is just 
uh, it, it's, it's just, you know, it gets exhausting. And when I was younger, maybe to take this full circle back to the beginning of the podcast, anything that was, you know, grueling and nihilistic and so hateful and bombastic, I would be all aboard. And maybe with age, I've come to take into, you know, as a, as a dude who loves movies, you kind of, and of my age, you see a bunch of, you know, what's now considered woke hectoring on Twitter. And you think, Oh, this is bullshit. You know, always go with the artist. You know, every director's a genius. Don't let, you know, don't let the censors or the, you know, the, the school marms come out for you. But I will say it did give me pause watching this movie in which every scene is a provocation. There's no moments of light uh, right off the bat. Uh, there's this, I would say, honestly, cinematically, the first 15, 20 minutes of this Movie-wise was the high point for me in terms of mood and atmosphere. Marilyn, there's a prologue with Marilyn when she's a young girl, and her mom is played by Julianne Nicholson, who has she's some form of mental illness and is kind of losing her marbles. Not to be cavalier about it, but uh, and it's almost a mini movie unto itself. Watching this lady who's a parent, who's a mom, kind of go through the ringer, and she takes her kid out during this fire, and it's very atmospheric. And there's this Nick Cave music that. Um, it's a soundscape that's kind of dark and foreboding and the little girl who's playing the little girl is terrific. And then, uh, you see Julian Nicholson, you know, uh, you know, as brave as Ana de Armas's performances. And this is definitely one of those things you got to say, Oh, it's so brave. Julian Nicholson is uh, just as good in 15, 20 minutes of this here at the beginning as what de Armas does through the rest of the movie, which is just suffer. And that's not to, you know, it's not to make light of the movie, but there is, this is the kind of performance where someone, everyone's going to go, Oh, so brave because she's naked. A lot of the time she's undergoing horrific things. Um, but you know, if that, that's true, but like, then so is the actress in I spit on your grave too. And she doesn't date Ben Affleck. So we don't all have to throw an Oscar campaign for her over a comparable performance. This is, I mean, that you can't not be moved by her reactions to these awful things, but, um, and I'm, I'm making it sound like I don't, there's no way to like this movie, but I sort of respect it. It has a singularity of purpose, if nothing else. But after this prologue, Marilyn is in Hollywood. She's a pinup girl. She's getting the casting couch. Everyone's sort of out to get her. Everyone wants a part of her. And visually, Dominic conveys this very well through casting. Something that like really elite filmmakers can do really well is cast faces distinctive faces and uh i would say some of the character actors in this movie not the big stars not your adrian brody your anna de Armas, of course but like there are like these two sleazy dudes who come through as charlie chaplin jr and edward g robinson uh, jr and they are so sleazy and they seem to be sort of a a, a, d a dynamic duo of tag team and chicks together and they make reference to the fact that they've done porno and i it was one of the many times in this movie maybe the first of many times in the movie i thought we could just look that up. Couldn't we, <laughs> couldn't we check that out? You know, couldn't we Google that was uh Charlie Chaplin jr. Really the Rocco Sofredi of 1927. Like there, there would be info on that. Wouldn't there? And, uh, but those two guys, whoever they are, I had never seen those actors before. And they look like they just exude sleaze and menace. And even though there's a brief moment where we think, Oh, at least to some degree, you know, it's an atypical relationship, sort of a, pansexual threesome of sorts or a, a menage a trois with, uh, with Marilyn. And she has some agency over it in the beginning. We, you know, when they have a, a sex scene, it's very distorted and it's uh painterly. It's like the colors are running to the sides and this way and that, and everything about the imagery is corrupted. And we just know these guys are bad news. And, 
but I was what I was saying about the casting of this movie, there are great uh, faces and extras. You know, there's a, a scene where Marilyn, the, the, the adoring throngs, that old cliche of all the starstruck fans watching Marilyn, you know, go through a premiere or something. And he pans across these this sea of faces and they're all these hideous guy i mean not to be offensive if you were an extra in this movie i'm sorry but he films it so their faces distort and there's mugging and their faces become animalistic as they're trying to like you know they want all want a part of Marilyn, and the guys are so gross and however he cast this it reminded me of like there's certain directors like really elite directors like when kubrick on the periphery of those movies or in the supporting parts there would be people that weren't you know, the Hollywood faces you would expect, you'd have your big star, your Ryan O'Neill or your Jack Nicholson. But a lot of the character parts in those movies were, you know, like you think of Joe Turkle and how he looked. And it was like, he came from outer space. You couldn't picture him as like a regular guy, um, you know, going through the regular auditioning process. And these, the sea of faces that he has in that paparazzi scene are just amazing. Probably remind me of like in Paul Thomas Anderson in the uh, master, when there's that part where Joaquin Phoenix, that fantastical image he has, um, of uh, at the piano scene where he, where he sees everybody naked and all those extras are sort of, you know, there's no recognizable faces. They're all kind of, they have a certain menacing look and they're, they're real and raw in a way. That's not a movie. It's not like, you know, a hack director would cast good looking naked people and, you know, Hollywood bodies and stuff, but the, the faces and the bodies are so uh, distinctive in that part. And this movie reminded me a lot of that casting these atypical looking people. I think visually there's moments in this movie like that, beginning with Julian Nicholson, that very heightened quality to that, to that sex scene with the the wiggling uh, uh, imagery and the colors, that part with the paparazzi. There's so, and in general, he's it's kind of in Dominic vision. If you know Assassination of Jesse James, it kind of has that burnt auburn periphery with the dusty white walls and stuff that, you know, it looks like that movie did in some parts, but man, that Netflix aesthetic gets the best of the man. There, there are other parts of this movie that kind of, I don't know. It seemed like I wanted more style or more stylistic exaggeration, like the best moments in it. And then sometimes when you do it for Netflix, man, there's just something. Maybe it's because you watch it at home and it has that icy black marble Netflix look to it. Some parts look of this looked incredible. Other parts, I, did, I didn't think it was up to his usual palette or his usual visual uh, acumen. But um, going back to the movie, I mean, it's such an unfun movie to talk about. I don't know why I would cap off my goofy, hey, guys, let's talk about Sheen. And here I got to talk about, you know, Marilyn's two terminated pregnancies and talking to a fetus that looks like the cigarette ad in the 80s where the fetus was smoking the cig that was supposed to look like the star child from 2001. You don't want to give it a bad laugh, obviously, but sometimes the cumulative effect is just it borders on it goes past punishing and into the realm of kind of ridiculous or just kind of just like you know like there's one point there's a sequence with jfk or it's not really in the movie it's called the president you know they can't say jfk i assume because they're afraid of a lawsuit or something but the movie leaves it for us to psychically divine what u.s president was in office during the cuban missile crisis had a thick boston accent and is known to have had a tryst with marilyn monroe and he assault first he you know he's very demeaning to her and he's watching the news he's like marilyn come on in here i don't know how you do a jfk voice and she pantomimes ana de armas pantomimes this blow job in a very depressing way as she's crying and you know he's basically assaulting her and then there's a 
second assault immediately afterward. It's just like more and more stuff just piles up and you're like, wow, this is again, not a fun movie. There are moments of maybe very fleeting, you know, there there's the high profile relationships with like Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller in there. Joe DiMaggio's play. Well, he's not Joe DiMaggio, like much like the pre the president. He's the ball player, the ball player, you know, they don't call him Joe DiMaggio. And he's played by our only living Italian American Goomba Guido meatball actor that they have to put in everything. Bobby Cannavale, who's always at a permanent overacting level of 11. I don't know. Did he do? I th- I think he did a lot of Broadway and plays. He he's always seems to be playing to the back row and he's always, especially when he gets to be ethnic in the movies, he's <laughs> as a fellow Italian, I find him a bit, uh, over the top, let's just say. And at first he seems like the good solid dude. And then of course he becomes abusive. There's this stretch with Arthur Miller where seem, things seem happy. And one of the better scenes in the movie actually is where she goes and does a read for Arthur Miller. And he's really struck by how intuitive an actress. And this is one of the few scenes where we get to see Marilyn, the great actress and how she was well read and could seize on how to play a character. And that part was really interesting. And Adrian Brody, uh, who's, you know, at first very likable in the movie and he's kind of captivated by, by Marilyn and uh, the Arthur Miller thing looks good at first, but she can't quite fit into his world. She takes a tumble and that's one of the, that's the second of the two uh, lost pregnancies. It's, it gets to the end and there's been a through line in the movie that Marilyn didn't have a father and her mother in her mentally ill state at the beginning had kind of told her what may or may not have been a fiction that her father was some man of some status in the Los Angeles area. So at various points in the movie, she tries to reconnect or track down her dad. And then at some point she starts receiving letters from her father. And at the end, the movie pulls the rug out from under her, you know, that this was a very cruel prank that one of the assholes in the movie was doing to her. So even, and even from the beyond the guy who was doing it is still an asshole and his buddy kind of just, I don't know, you look it up and this didn't really happen. So it's like, it kind of gave me pause. I don't know. And I used to be the guy, maybe to bring this full circle as I'm just sort of droning on about blonde and looking for a way to tie it together. I started out saying 30 years ago or whenever I used to just like feverish, bombastic, aggressive movies. It was all about the filmmaking. I would think of like, my my go-to example is like JFK by Oliver Stone. When that came out, I was 18, 19. I loved that movie so much. And when they would, the op-eds and the, the, the talking heads would talk about that movie. There were, these were like legitimate newsmen who had covered JFK, who had certainly more insight into this than I did as a Rube in Pittsburgh, who was in my first year of college. But I would be so mad. My blood would be boiling if they didn't love the movie. And maybe Tom Brokaw or some kind of guy who was around at the time would talk about Oliver Stone as this cons- conspiracy crackpot and this wasn't true and the movie can has to be discounted because this is bullshit and i would just get so i'd be like don't you get it it's a four-star movie man if roger ebert gave it four stars and i would be so mad that a person of the news or a person of politics wouldn't love the movie because i only could see movies and i remember when uh Michael Mann did the insider and they interview, you know, there's Mike Wallace as a character in the movie is played by Christopher Plummer. And my, the real Mike Wallace was mad about his portrayal in the movie. And he was mad that there's a scene where he sits around. He's like, Oh yeah, that's what I do. Sit around talking about my uh, legacy with dot with, um, Bert Lowell Bergman or, or Don Hewitt or whoever. Uh, and he was mad about the movie. And I was, I was, I was like shaking my fist at the real Mike Wallace that Mike Wallace wouldn't understand that the movie, the insider by being directed by the director of heat and last of the Mohicans is 
more important than anything you've done in your life. And you should just be worshiping the fact that they've made, they've included you in a Michael Mann movie. You've been touched by the gods. And so I had no reverence for actual history or the actual truth. It was all just about who was making the coolest, most bombastic, craziest, awesomest, most stylish movies. And maybe with age here, uh, me not even knowing anything about the Marilyn Monroe the real Marilyn Monroe. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a fan. I'm not an aficionado. In fact, when this movie was on the way, I found it very ridiculous that a lot of like 30 year old film Twitter types were like, so, Oh, so worried about the legacy of Marilyn Monroe and that, you know, people have misperceptions. Now I was like, you know, Marilyn Monroe was dead 10 years before I was born and I'm 50. And I was thinking like, you're a 30 year old girl in like clunky glasses and fuchsia hair. Can you care this much about Marilyn Monroe? Marilyn Monroe wouldn't want to hang out with you. Um, but now, having seen the movie, and I'm, as you can tell, even a month on, maybe I'm sort of ambivalent about it. Maybe it does kind of, something about it, I did find it disquieting that some of these elements didn't happen, or that you can use her as the jump-off point for what's basically, as Mark Kermode called it, a horror movie. It's just, you know, and that brings it back to the Lynch connection that I made, that it's, you know, a lot like Twin Peaks, a lot like uh, Mulholland Drive. I think that Dominic's worldview is much darker, actually, than David Lynch's, so that's what makes the movie kind of grinding, and it's weird to come out of this, at the end of this, to wrap it all up, saying that, uh, you know, for a movie this provocative and this overheated and this, you know, controversial and this hated, to come out where I, even, you know, going through it like this, I still don't know what my take is on it. But I guess I've been sort of wrestling with it and just wanted to get that out. I don't know why. Maybe I'll cut this whole thing out and just end with me goofing on She Said or something. <laughs> on a lighter note, I'm going to say goodbye here. But there was a movie. If This is a bonus. You can. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll come back for the next one in four months. But here's, here's an Easter egg of a movie you definitely don't care. If you didn't care about Blonde, you're definitely not going to care about Medieval with Ben Foster. This is an awful gladiator movie. Um, I'm behind on my Oscar bait, as I've said 80 times in this in part because I go to see dumb shit like this because I just can't resist when there's a quasi DTV looking terrible movie that I just simply have to see. And this is kind of a gladiator, braveheart, warrior type movie. It's one of these movies that's like a sub Ridley. It's like a bad Ridley Scott. Actually, it's like a bad Kevin McDonald doing a bad Kevin Reynolds version of bad Ridley Scott. That's how many bads you have to get to. It's got the all international cast. It's got Ben Foster in the lead, like I said. Uh, Michael Caine's in there lending a touch of class. Uh, Matthew Good's in it. And of course, uh, uh, Carl Roden and Till Schweiger. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're watching some hack shit when they get Till Schweiger or, uh, or Thomas Kretschmann is when you can't get Schweiger, you get Kretschmann. You get one of those two guys. And he is playing, Ben Foster is playing Jan Zizka, who's apparently a Czech national hero who's known as one of the great warriors in military history. And none of that is evidence in this movie at all as he leads this crew of sort of like bumbling badasses with it the movie it's one of those movies that opens i am bored immediately like i've just here's the thing when you go to a movie like this and there's a crawl at the beginning or there's an opening narration that sets up the world i'm always very resentful of it and i do this thing 
to my own detriment where I zone out. I'm talking like the Star Wars Dune kind of thing, uh, especially when it's very badly done. And maybe if a movie has text on screen, it's like, dude, I just sat down. I just I just opened my paper straw to enjoy my tumbler of grape Sprite and I'm getting myself situated. I don't need a history lesson on the 14th century struggle between this king died. So there's two guys who could be the Pope and one's in France and one's in Hungary. And I'm 35 seconds in and I'm like, I got no idea what you're talking about. None. Like, put, give me some charts and graphs because it's got both a narration and text going once. So I'm double zoned out. I have no idea what they're talking about. There's this portentous shot of Michael Caine and you figure, well, there's Michael Caine, a legend. He's got to be a king. No, he's not the king. Uh, is he one of the popes? No, he's not one of the popes. He's just some dumbass delivering a message. You got Michael Caine and he's played a messenger and they attack his carriage and then they go to the you're not going to care about this at all but it's the point being at no point in this movie did i ever understand who anyone was what they were fighting for matthew good is kind of the villain and he has enacted this plan with the till schweiger's wife who's the daughter of some king and i don't even know what king she's the daughter of and they're gonna they pay someone to kidnap her and then ben foster kidnaps her again and they're gonna i have no idea just from immediately I was bored. I was zoned out. It's gray. It's sludge. It's, you know, some of the battle scenes aren't that bad. It's one of those things where like, it's an all international production. Everyone's kind of doing their own accent. It's like an accent free for all, but it's one of those like cheap. It's like an Epic. That's like kind of on the cheap. Like it feels like a church produced it or something like, you know, it doesn't feel first rate. And when there's ADR or like the scenes of like the, you know, the uh, peasants in the tents or whatever, it's a lot of that voice where it's like, Oh, you know, like when you see an Italian movie and the guys on the periphery are dubbed like, oh, okay, it's a lot of that guy with that shaky, quaking Italian dubbing accent voice off to the sides. Even though everyone in the movie is doing English, I don't know why they have recorded with that filter. Um, you never know who's on whose side. I'm only bringing this up because there's like really one cool thing in the movie I wanted to point out and it happens in the last minute. This is the rare movie where the last minute is kind of awesome. Maybe the last two minutes you've been bored. You've been, you know, watching these interchangeable battle scenes. You don't know what any of the plot machinations were. There's a point where I'm not ruining anything to tell you this, that Michael Caine just dies at some point by just walking into frame and he has an arrow in him. He's like, I messed up and bothered the king. I'm dead now. And like, you're like, who killed? Like what? When? Why wouldn't you show Michael Caine getting killed? He just shows up with the wound and falls over and tells Ben Foster some bullshit. And then he's gone. And Ben Foster loses an eye at some point. It seems like he's just messing up a lot in this movie. But then the last minute of it, after all this is the battle's been had and everything and Ben Foster's going on his way. There's this awesome shot at the end of this movie where he's standing against a horizon. And in the background, there's a mountain and cliffs and these all these Warriors are coming at him and you it's going to be in the next battle. He's on to the next battle and you see like hundreds, maybe thousands of troops just running at full speed. And it looks really cool. Like it doesn't even look that CGI. It looks like they got a ton of extras and did this and they're coming at him full speed and he's going to get his sword out and you see the sword come out and then bam, the movie ends. And you're thinking they should have made a movie about that, like him fighting this awesome battle and being this badass warlord, because then it hits you with this postscript that like Jan Zizka went on to be the greatest 
military. He's known as the greatest military tactician in all of history, which explains why, you know, in American schools, we we never hear of Napoleon or anything. We just hear about Jan Zizka. (laughs) No, none of that Waterloo. We're talking about Zizka this year. I had never heard of him. I'm obviously not Czech. I didn't really understand in the whole movie why he was, if his he and his crew were Czech, why they were in Rome for this papal uh, conspiracy, but whatever, you go with it. But at the end, it kind of, maybe it is that George Hamilton movie thing I was telling you about an hour ago, where it gets to the end, they're like, this guy ended up being the awesomest guy in the history make the movie about the guy being that guy and all his travails and adventures where he's really kicking ass on the global scale. This seems like a, you know, an, a warm up. And uh, based on how well this did, I don't think there's going to be a medieval two to get to that stuff. But I just like the last minute, it's the rare movie where it kind of ends on a really awesome note. And I was like, I got kind of pumped up as I was, as it goes to black. And I was like, damn, I wouldn't have slept through that whole thing if I knew something was going to be cool at the end. But uh, that's medieval. It's, a terrible movie i think it's on streaming now so if you need a nap i would definitely recommend it for that anyway that's been the lex g podcast i covered trailers i covered uh you know babbling about richard linklater and james gray for no reason i gave you a deep dive on blonde and i riffed about medieval none of that goes together it's all been odds and ends if you made it to the end of that, thank you. I don't know why you would, but uh, there was no through line here. And that's one of the things I like to do, you know, whether it's the films of this year or the lightning round of this director, it always helps these to kind of have something to always come back to to have a thesis. It's almost like, you know, being back in film school and writing a paper or something. But this one was just all over the map. Uh, if it was any fun at all, I'm glad you enjoyed it. If not, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the next one in four months, will be, we'll get to those films of Tony Scott or something something down the road but uh thanks for checking it out and uh thanks a lot guys have a good day all right bye